0: Utility and Grids of Energy Transitions. Interview with Christina Hochkova, Episode 14. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 Podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Kristina Hochkova, a senior strategy analyst at Western Power in Australia. She holds a PhD from Chalmers University of Technology, the Department of Energy and Environment. This interview with Christina is important because we discuss a unique angle on the energy transition, the role that grids play in shaping both how we produce and consume electricity. We discuss the opportunities of electrification in developing countries, how electricity can help women earn more money by powering the machines to help make clothing or pottery, and how the electricity grid will be shaped in the future. Christina provides a conceptual framework to understand how supergrids to microgrids shape our self-sufficiency and interconnectedness as a society. We also discuss blockchain technologies and potential limits of peer-to-peer payment systems. This brings up how utility companies change their business models to meet these new technologies, integrating and changing both the energy system and society. Finally, we discuss Christina's transition from a PhD student to an analyst in a traditional utility company. She remarks on the value of what the PhD process can teach you. And now for this week's episode, what are you learning? So it's the grid, grid operator that you're working at. And, and yeah. how do you, how do you see the, just in three weeks now, how do you see the electrical system differently?
1: Um, I wouldn't say I see differently. I think I see a, um, more nuanced. I have a I have a more detailed view on the actual issues that they, they deal with, um, I think it's very difficult when you have a huge organization that has been doing something for decades and then all of a sudden they have to rethink all of that. And what, what's really visible is that there is this narrative within the company where they don't like renewables or because they they create challenges on the grid and they struggle seeing them as an opportunity. And it's always sort of this issue that they're trying to tackle. Um, yeah, but it's not it's not easy because as they say, you know, you can try to innovate and you can try to think long term and strategize, but at the end of that conversation about innovation you still have to uh, operate a day to day business. And I think that's where the issue comes in place. And I see why big companies such as Eon uh, actually create a subsidiary company that are specifically just focusing on you know, renewables and, um, and that way they, they get sort of that the freedom of mind or, or activities that can be fully focused on, uh, new solutions and renewables.
0: Mm-hmm. Be- because, uh, for, for a company, it's probably easier to, yeah, set up a firm with a, maybe a strong strategic direction rather than preserving the older system that that's in place. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. So, so I guess, so I guess they, then you can, uh, focus both intention and investment in these two different companies, one on trying to retire the old or, you know, so decrease the investment in that area, but still do it slowly and and carefully, uh, so that that it doesn't impact the customers in a negative way. Uh, And then you have the other company that also has its sort of um, focus and investment into new things. And then I guess the intention is that the big one will a big company will over time become the small and vice versa.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay, great. And, um, uh, how, how does your acad because I'm really excited that you're in a company. Now, I, someone, <laughs> someone moved from academia to a company. Wow. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and how, how do you find your skills, your skill set from a, I would say, an academic, right? You have a PhD now. This is great. Uh, yeah. and how do you, how do you bring what you learn? in so many years of academia to, to a company. I know it's still early, I know.
1: I'm, I'm very thankful for, for the PhD because it really taught me to think things through or in a way always question everything. And if I hear a concept, I'm like, hmm, what, is it, what does it really mean? And what you notice in working in a company is that you have just, you have meetings all day. And you barely have time to sit down and write the material you need to know for the meeting and if i didn't do the phd and had all the time to sit down and read and reread and write and rewrite and rethink um i would never have the actual opportunity to think deeply and also develop very deep knowledge about things when you work in a company everything's happening very fast um and and what it results in is that you have these trials and sort of they develop new things and it's like this conceptual complexity of it is just incredible when i'm like looking at it and i'm like you could say this with simple words and you would say the same thing or you guys are talking about the exactly same thing but you're using different words but they don't know because they've never actually had that training of being able to to see concepts maybe in a different way. And I think academia and research has a very special place. And I think I appreciate it so much more now that I'm working in a company where you just have that luxury of time to think um, and read and think because you do not have that in a company.
0: That's great. Oh, wow. So, uh Let's back up uh, a little bit and you had time to think during the PhD But well, wh- how did you get involved in energy and why did it become a interesting topic for you?
1: Mm. Um, yeah, so it started during my master's studies So I became very interested in sustainable development And I guess it's to do with coming from an Eastern European country where the focus wasn't there to going to Scandinavia where my mind just opened and i was like oh my god this is so important and great and i want to be a part of this and my dream really was to work for the un eventually united nations so i tried to do everything to get there and i was lucky enough to be admitted to a um, it was called the regional academy to the at, at the united nations and i went to vienna headquarters and worked with the sustainable energy for all initiative and we worked on this project to evaluate storage in rural remote areas of sub-saharan Africa and it was just it was just very interesting and very engaging and I enjoyed it so much that I just decided this is what I'm gonna do in you know my future career and so I wrote my master thesis as well on um, electrification as means of development in remote uh, areas of Tanzania. And I was particularly interested in how electrification can bring about new entrepreneurial activities for women. So it was this beautiful combination of using technology as a means of sort of providing a completely new societal um, change where, where gender dynamics change and family dynamics change um, and though I never really actually get to go to Tanzania because I was a poor student, um, I just knew that uh, I'd like to continue on that track. And then um, there was this PhD position available and though it wasn't about Africa, it was still uh, very relevant because what I've observed in, in my master thesis was that there was this effort to replicate the Western centralized energy system design or the grid design in sub Saharan Africa and how that didn't work. And that the PhD was about different grid designs. And I was like, this is so great. Get to actually just sort of dig deep into this. So, um, that's how I got into it.
0: And uh, I, li- I like your focus on electrification um, and why what what is it about electrification and you were mentioning for example women and how electrification or a centralized maybe I, I guess electrification of sub-saharan Africa d- couldn't work or wasn't working and 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 why is that and why why electrification? Why is, because usually we talk about energy and gas and all, there's so many, you know, topics. And I really like how, how specific you are on electrification. So what what kind of opportunities does electrification uh, hold for, for people in developing countries?
1: Mm. Well, in developing countries, at least in my study, for us, it seems like an everyday normal. Um, but they, you know, in, in a lot of the, those areas, they don't even have, they can't turn their lights on in the evening and they can't buy machinery to do something to, to make extra um, income uh, for women disposable income that they just don't have access to um, so uh, it, it was about uh, being able to turn their lights on uh, to study and um, you know become professionals in something and also buying um, machines to for example, uh, make clothes, um, uh, pottery uh, and things that uh, are sort of they could sell uh, in their local village. So it's, it's huge. I mean uh, you know this is examples where technology just have, has a very important place in bringing new opportunities that you know centri- a century ago also um, happened in Europe in the US. but we just don't think about it anymore.
0: Yes. I, I had a similar experience last year. I went to Myanmar, you know, a lot happening there, but but we we went to different villages and even just stopped at this roadside, I don't know, shop. It was a collection of, of things. And we interviewed this lady there and it was her business. And, and she had just gotten connected to the central grid. Uh, to the distribution network just a year previously so she could reflect on how her business was doing uh, now compared to when she had just solar. And for example, she said she bought a refrigerator to keep the beer cold and, and she bought a pool table. So now she was turning into this like a micro bar, small bar with these guys hanging out, playing pool, you know, drinking beer. Okay. It's a, it's a bar, but still it's, it's, you know, money that, that was going into her. And then she could employ her sister who was selling things. So, so just this grid connection, I could see the difference between that uh her her location right next to the road being connected to the grid and a, a small village we went to where they weren't connected to the grid and they were just relying on a diesel generator and some solar mm. so th- there's a dr- yeah. I, I was yeah it was amazing really amazing
1: yeah and,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and relating to the sorry
0: Go go ahead go ahead
1: in relating to the fact that she was next to the road uh, she was one of the fortunate ones that it was actually really close to the to the main grid but in in remote area uh, they just don't have the opportunity and definitely don't have the means to pay for the connections mm-hmm. themselves because it's not the government actually that provides the connection to the grid to you you have to pay that so um I was very interested in the leap, and I still am in leapfrogging alternatives where, you know, you look at the local context, you look what the opportunities are, you look at what the challenges are, and you try to shape the energy system based on that, um, you know, in, as in an in alternative to whatever the sort of dominant design is, and try to uh, build these, you know, centralized grid infrastructures in a country where The governance and the sort of grid operation industry just isn't there yet uh and there's a lot of corruption and a lot of issues and it just takes a long time and these people are really you know there's a lot of desire there's a lot of demand for for electricity because they understand the potential um as you said it's not just about themselves it's about their family um it's about you know um it's changing lives and and um that is why i created so much passion uh about the topic
0: Mm -hmm. yes and and how uh i want to kind of go to some of your publications that that you you have from from your thesis which i really enjoyed reading and and the the articles themselves and uh you you bring in for, for example the high voltage lines uh, I have the acronym someplace else, not in front of me. So you can correct me. You have all this memorized right after writing. I know it's a few years ago so some of this was written, but I was just wondering, could you maybe explain maybe the, just even the different grid, uh, different types of grids and, and what's so interesting about those.
1: Mm. Um, yeah. So why are grids so interesting and important to study? Um, well. I think the answer relates to uh, my previous point on uh, the replicability of certain grid designs. So early on when I realized um, that there are multiple grid alternatives, so you can either do centralized or you can try to leapfrog and do um, small scale solar and batteries, um, that these alternatives have distinguished uh, characteristics. They have their benefits and drawbacks. They always have some kind of trade-offs. Um, and this was already observed by Thomas Hughes. I don't know if you came across a book called New Networks of Power.
0: Mm-mm, mm-mm. So I, I don't want to say no, but old. I know I haven't. <laughs> so I guess I need to read it.
1: <laughs> well, it was written in the 80s and it's the thickest book I've ever seen. So maybe maybe not the easiest read. But anyway, so Thomas Hughes was uh, an engineer that was passionate about the social aspects of Technology, and he described how London, Chicago, and Berlin, um, how the electricity systems developed and shaped there. And he described how the electricity grids, which is basically just sort of a set of, you know, physical infrastructure, shaped very differently in these different places. And and he was describing how this was all shaped by by different societal and organizational structures. And now, as we are in the midst of uh, another transition, maybe not the complete sort of emergence of systems from nothing, uh, but we're transitioning to a different system that is built around renewables, the way the electricity grid will be shaped um, will also shape different institutional and organizational structures. Um, And the reason why it's important to look at the extreme alternatives, which is what I did. So I looked at the super grid system, which is the um, sort of scenario of a global large scale transmission grid uh, that would interconnect uh, the whole world around large scale renewables uh, in like a sub-Saharan um, Africa on the Sahara. And you would have wind in the Arctic and, and just very ambitious vision, very interesting. Um, but I also looked at the off-grid vision, for example, where um, everyone would just become self-sufficient um, and defect from the grid. Uh, and, and the fact that there is a possibility of these things to actually become the future makes it interesting and important to study. Uh, exactly because it does have impact of how the society shapes uh, in the future as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what did you find, for example, if you talk about, uh, microgrids? Or no, actually, you know, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the high voltage transmission lines. Uh, okay. cause this, this is something that I think, uh, a lot of people overlook. And mm. what are the, and you kind of hit on the, the technology of it and even the difference between China and Europe and even the United States. You even use, you use this nice term of balkanized kind of approach in the United States, mm. which I like. Yeah. Um, but how, how can you talk about maybe even just the global or regional differences and how these transmission lines are used and the, the impact they can make? Particularly, I think, uh, re- renewables, for example, you talk about how it can be set up differently. And what, what is the impact of these high voltage, because they do have an environmental impact and there's a lot of opposition mm. to having these in, in places. But what, what, what is the benefit that they can bring?
1: I think hmm, that's a really interesting question. One thing, though, that I have to start with is that when you speak to proponents of either the supergrid, which is people who love transmission grids uh smart grid people who just love software-based decentralized solutions or you talk to microgrid people who just want to disconnect they all think that they their solution is environmentally you know the most beneficial financially the most beneficial so from a societal perspective the most beneficial so it's very difficult to evaluate exactly which of these alternatives is, is better because it really depends whom you speak to and i think After my study, I one thing I wish to see a study about is the material um, consequences of different scenarios. So if you look at building high voltage uh, transmission cables across the world to connect them to large scale renewable um, power plants, basically, is that materially, you know, uh, more environmentally damaging than building smart grids, which means we, we put solar panels on people's roofs and we uh, connect them with a lot of sort of distribution networks and batteries because batteries are a big deal in, in smart grids. So, so which one is materially, you know, more environmentally damaging? I have no idea and I don't think anyone really have any stats about that. Um, so from that perspective, it's very difficult to to, to evaluate. But the reason why I was interested in the supergrid is because at the beginning, when re- renewables actually weren't um, as cheap and as um, uh, sort of it was still in the beginning of that technology adoption curve, the first ideas around how to connect renewables or integrate them in the system were very much following the traditional logic of um, transmission system planning and development. And so engineers from big companies such as ABB came up with ideas that well, you know, if we have renewables, renewables are always located in areas that are far away from the actual consumption. So we have to just connect them with these high voltage direct current cables. And just this idea kicked off technological advancement like never before and today we know that we have um, transmission technologies that can connect um, over two thousand three thousand three thousand kilometers which is wow. quite um, you know significant but, so so this was the discussion in like the early 2000s and even the eu um has put quite some money into uh funding research and trying to see how europe build the european super grid and it was the most popular idea and definitely batteries and distributed solutions were were um you know a less feasible um solution back then over time however it became a bit it became obvious that um, actually connecting, you know, these renewables across countries is more difficult than they would have imagined. And it might be because uh, these ideas were developed by engineers that do over focus on technology, and they sort of underestimate the power of politics and the power of, you know, regulation and how much hindrance that can create uh, even though in their mind, you know, it's a great technical solution and, and it helps us to transition to renewables, uh, very fast and very, you know, with, with a few of these transmission lines, you know, we could, we could move to 50% renewables in no time and still it didn't happen. Instead of that, what we see is that more and more of the discussion is sort of leaning towards small scale, local, um with all all kinds of new software um solutions sort of interconnecting customer or consumer owned pv and batteries and um and the the idea of the supergrid is slowly dying and it's sort of becoming a solution to places where the demand is still growing so if you if you do have a high demand and you cannot satisfy it by local solutions you still sort of look at um uh, offshore wind, and you have to connect that with, with the high-voltage cable. But it's definitely not to the scale of what it was, you know. Because, like, one had. of
0: the projects in the past was Desert Tech. That was, I think, yeah, widely known. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: So I think most people are familiar with that, and they thought, oh, incredible idea. And uh, when I spoke to the previous CEO of Desert Tech, a very nice guy, and he, he genuinely cares about, you know, moving towards a clean energy future. Um, but what they didn't consider is actually just just discuss the idea with the markets that they wanted to install the generation in. And they, they just didn't ask them whether they liked the idea. <laughs> they just sort of took that for granted. And I think there's a lot of lessons learned from, from that process. And, um, you know, that is why I think the way it develops now is a bit more, considerate of those.
0: um, It's this this idea that uh, if you're producing something huge, like, um, yeah, wind or solar in the desert, right, that those local people in North Africa actually don't even have, or they have very limited, you know, access to electricity, for example. So you actually have to supply them first, rather than shipping it all to to Europe. Yeah.
1: And those are the questions that just weren't asked. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a bit of a, sad story there, but, um, yeah, it very much depends on who's developing new energy systems. And that also reflects the actual societal consequences that those systems will have.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to shift a little bit then, uh, because actually when we met, we talked a lot about blockchain technology, uh, and, and, uh, so we, we get into the payment system, which is right. Someone has to pay for this all. So. Uh, and i i know from reading your articles it was a few years ago but how how do you see blockchain technology how have you seen it develop over the years since you've been following this for a while
1: um uh yeah so so that's that's quite interesting so i i remember uh when i first heard about peer-to-peer i remember thinking i was very excited about the idea of neighbors being able to trade um and share electricity with one another directly because that's the idea of sort of peer or peer electricity trading and blockchain technology is just sort of a vehicle for that to happen uh it's a software technology that helps that allows people just to do it without intermediaries um and I guess because I started looking at it from a, a customer perspective and from the perspective of people who own PV, it was a very exciting idea. Um, and if you do ask, you know, solar PV owners or even, um, consumers that don't have their own solar, uh, because they, they don't have the opportunity to have like, like tenants, uh, they, um, are really sort of excited about being able to, to directly Uh, involved in accelerating to transition the transition bottom-up from from the people to the top Um, but then when you speak to retailers who are really being hurt um, in this process so if you if you want beautiful electricity trading who loses really in this process is uh, anyone who, who is involved in retail of electricity
0: so, it's a lot of, it's a uh, lot, sorry, it's a lot of money to be made, right? And especially yeah, trading. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Well, they're sort of collecting, um, crumpets, but, um, crumbles, but they, uh, but there are a lot of them. So they, they do eventually get a lot of money. And, and often, you know, the analogy that's often used is that imagine that uh, the way you would buy electricity it's like buying tomatoes in a farmer's market so you buy it straight from the farmer instead of going to a supermarket and buying tomatoes there um, and in the energy sector this you know seems like a very disruptive idea but in other sectors it's already happening um so my experience so so obviously i went through the hype and trough uh, myself so i was in the hype very excited um worked with the startup that was developing this future idea and i was very closely involved in in a trial in australia that's how i got here is um yeah and so i had um it's an interesting experience because um it, it has taught me a lot um and it has taught me that maybe it was a bit a little too soon to to go to peer to peer from a very centralized system. So they're definitely bridging business models and technologies that will have to um be put in place before we can go all the way to peer to peer electricity trading. And one of the one of the biggest issues, you know, obviously institutional being being the biggest, such as, you know, tariff structures that don't allow you to do peer to peer regulations that don't allow you to to buy uh, to sell electricity to your neighbor you can only do it through a retailer even if you wanted to circumvent him or her or the company you wouldn't be able to it's also the fact that that the it the ict infrastructure and the smart metering systems just aren't there yet and um i'm not saying that there isn't work done but most of the pilots with here to be trading still are playing around with very few houses. We're talking from like ten up to maybe hundred. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm not following the latest uh, trials, but they you know we're not talking um, large, very large scale. So in order to get there, um, we will we will need quite substantial technical advancement. Um, but that will, in my opinion, come. But before that, we might like likely see virtual power plants. We might see uh, DR or distributed energy resources aggregator uh, and things that will allow us to integrate these small scale renewables in the energy market, but it might not go straight to peer to peer.
0: I don't know what to, to say after that. I'm, I'm a little depressed. <laughs> so. <laughs> it, it There was so much hype before. But I, I remember, yeah, mm-hmm. some of my students looking into it as well. And then they were like, well, there's not that much going on. And it's limited. Yeah. Uh, you brought out regulation. And is this an area where and I'd love the topic of regulation? Is this a, an area where maybe there needs to be regulation to even allow it to happen? And that could actually encourage it?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like if there was a regulatory change, you know, it would definitely move things towards peer to peer. So if, if there was something that's called full contestability, I think is the term. So if you allow anyone with a generation unit to sell, um, electricity, They could move to, you know, they could start creating sort of peer to peer, uh, energy communities. But at the moment, there are some regulatory issues that are very easy to understand. For example, um, if, if a house, if a resident owns solar PV, is this person an individual person or is it a business? Because it has a lot of influence on sort of tax and the way these people are treated, liability and, and you know, security and reliability of the system is, is paramount. So you have to focus on that as well. So the institutional sh- change is slow for a good reason, but it's also slow for bad reason. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's definitely a lot that could be done um, that isn't, uh, but also sometimes you need to rethink before you go all the way to peer-to-peer. And that is why I'm saying virtual power plants is sort of like a midway because you almost have a um, utility company that's specifically focusing on taking customer PV solar and batteries and putting them together in a power plant uh, in a way where the community of those owners you know, get the benefits of their systems and really value their energy as if it was coming from a large scale generator.
0: Okay, okay, good. And um, I think, can I I, I wanna follow up with virtual power plant, just in case people Mm. don't know what that is. And I think it's a cool concept. Can you you explain what a virtual power plant is and the potential in it?
1: Mm. Well, virtual power plant is just like a regular power plant. So if you think of building a new gas power plant, um i guess it's easier to think about it because it's visible and it's tangible in a way um a, a virtual power plant is basically just aggregation of small-scale renewables um and this is possible because of you know how how advanced a lot of the software technology is where you can actually um, take data from coming from the metering of these different um, small-scale renewables or or batteries and put, put it together in order to then communicate with the rest of the market or the electricity system.
0: Mm-hmm. And or or on the demand side, right? You can influence mm. uh, the consumer's demand, how much electricity they're using and actually mm. save it or shift it, shift it around or yeah. something like that.
1: It's um, a lot to do with shaving the duck curve. So I don't know if you heard of the duck curve. So it's, it's when uh, too much rooftop solar PV is causing the system low and system high to the extent where the uh, grid isn't really handling it anymore so um, so batteries could be used or sort of this uh, virtual power plant could be used to do um, what do you call what, what do we use a lot these days to flatten the curve flatten the curve, curve. yeah oh. by finding ways how to create flexibility in mm-hmm. uh, operating um, these uh, small scale uh, technologies
0: mm-hmm. yeah, balance balance it all out. Um, mm-hmm. And let's see here. Um, okay, I, let's. I, I want to move on a little bit here uh, to some of the, the questions I wrote to you. And with I really
1: te- like the one about microbits, by the way. Oh, okay.
0: So let's hit on that. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. So you had a question that you asked. What is the impact that off grid can have for the or how the grid operates. And um, I think because we discussed the super grid, we discussed the smart grid. So the microgrid is one of those last things that we haven't talked about. And when I lived in Sweden, the off-grid system really wasn't, there wasn't a lot of vibrant you know, discussion around off-grid. But um, since I came to Australia, this is a real topic. like. It's a real issue, Uh Um, but it's important Uh to clarify that off-grid can be defined in different ways. So in my research, I particularly was interested in the scenario of complete grid defection. So if, you know, in other words, the complete sort of fall of the grid as we know it. Um, So in the uh, the most extreme impact um, could be that the grid would lose significance whatsoever. Um, the same, the utility, um, grid, of course, because they would still have to be grids in, even in your house, you mm-hmm. have grids. Mm-hmm. Um, but here in Australia, where, uh, in the middle of the day, you have, uh, 60% of the capacity comes, comes from rooftop solar PV. Um, this future is really becoming, uh, more and more tangible because, um, as this is creating a lot of challenges on the grid, the grid constantly needs to be, you know, augmented and it has to be strengthened and that costs a lot of money and that money just increases electricity prices. So you might, might have heard that electricity prices in Australia are one of the highest in the world where it's because they are spending so much money on the grid because there's so much solar that sort of is, uh, you know, destab- destabilizing it. And it is really just a matter of time You know, uh, and it's a matter of what the utilities or the grid owners will do about it. Um, Because if they don't do anything and the electricity prices just continue to increase, there's a a likelihood of people and there's the customer insights already are showing that people are thinking about getting batteries. So if you just increase electricity prices, they will see batteries almost like an investment, like when you invest in a new car. It's just something you do. You save money for it because it's necessary. to to cut your electricity bills. Um, So that can happen. And it is one of the reasons why I took the the role in the grid operator because I wanted to, in a way kind of contribute for that not to happen. Um, I I don't personally think that grid defection is uh, a good scenario because uh, it, it has some negative consequences on social equity
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be
1: a sad thing to see in developing countries, right, that uh, it, it would, you know, as a matter of you know, fact, it would uh, first happen for the rich people or those that can afford it and those, those that own houses, and then, you know, for, for, for a while there, people who cannot afford it uh, would be in a very disadvantaged situation, which is better to be avoided, um, and if the only issue really is for the utilities to just be stubborn and difficult to change that's that's not you know shouldn't be that much of a barrier um to, to really go into those um almost uh disastrous <laughs> um but, but,
0: sorry uh i love the the question about social equity and bringing that in but what is the i guess maybe we could start with the original problem is Uh, The cost of the grid and maintaining the grid if it's so expensive Mm. that it drives people away uh, How how to lower the cost of the grid?
1: Well one way to do it is not to build more poles and wires so and This discussion is already existing so 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 most of the investment is encouraged to go to non-grid alternatives and uh, when I say non-grid alternatives, I mean batteries i mean um using inverters to create flexibility in the grid. um to also you know uh change the tariff structure to so encourage people to do demand response um but also things like um flexibility from uh not only individual customers but these virtual power plants so okay.
0: Yes. Yes. We have,
1: mm-hmm. we have people coming into the market, um, already having these, you know, small scale renewables um, digitally integrated. So they, you know, come to the grid operator and they say, "Well, look, I can provide flexibility for you instead of you investing more in in replacing a substation because you you're not handling the influx of solar in the middle of the day or the system low." Um, I will follow your, you know, advice on when to send how much electricity. So there, there means to do it. It's just that grid operators often because historically they've been doing everything, they've been the ones planning and developing, and there was no one coming in. There was no competition in terms of grids. Uh, and it's not only the case in Australia, it's also in Europe, you know, most grid operators are state owned, uh, retail is different. You have a lot of competition there, but. I think it's just very difficult for them to change the thinking, you know, around, you know, have, you know, collaborating with other companies to do it.
0: Because, well, I mean, what, they have to invest in a way to not put themselves out of business, but for example, the battery storage, right? So maybe, maybe they have to invest in, in house or encourage, uh, household, to invest in battery storage, right? Which, which is against the grid if that's what they've been doing their business with and making their money with. So they almost have to encourage this decentralized, I don't want to say non grid approach, but de gridding, mm-hmm. I guess we could, we could yeah. frame it as. So it's these yeah. alternative technologies that have to be encouraged in order to keep the grid alive. I guess that's what yeah. I'm getting. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. 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 And it's basically for a great company to tell them. That in the future they won't really be a great company because that won't be their biggest focus. It's a very difficult thing to, you know, accept and start acting upon. Yeah, Um, but
0: but sorry, but but, uh, look, uh, RWE, Eon, you probably know these companies, right? They, they've kind of, they, there are, they were, and they are going through this process as well, breaking themselves up, selling one unit to Mm -hmm. the other unit, and just this whole how do they revitalize themselves because they can't make the money that they did in the past and how do they reinvent Mm. themselves into consultants or whatever right they have all this knowledge they have this infrastructure but if that's not valued anymore at least the infrastructure in the way it was in the past how do they reinvent themselves as, as a company so yeah
1: and i think that's every 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 great company is battling that um with that exact thing and even where I work, they know exactly what the grid will look like in the future. They know it's going to be a modular grid and it's going to be a lot of standalone power um, systems. But to actually go from concept to action is where the difficulties are. But they're getting there. I think it seems to me that it's it's going to be a very gradual and slow process. And then all of a sudden, you know, all this accumulation of, of small activities will then all of a sudden um, create quite a, a massive shift. I'm hoping at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, but it is it is quite slow unfortunately and, and that's not good um, because we don't have that much time.
0: Yeah, but do you Okay, this is veering away from the things that we were going to talk about, but I'm just thinking with this COVID-19 and, mm-hmm. and and particularly I would say the price of oil, right? And then the pressure now that the oil companies are experiencing to invest in renewable energy. I'm almost getting a sense, and I don't even want to like say it too much, but that that maybe now we're getting closer to this tipping point where we move away much more strongly from fossil fuels. Because renewable energy is so much cheaper now than even just a few years ago. Do you do you feel this yeah. similar kind of landscape out there where maybe we are at this tipping point now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think in Australia, it's no question at all. Um, e- economically, it just uh, makes more sense to go renewable than even oil, um, coal, oil, meaning sort of these diesel generators, or even gas. And gas is pretty um, cheap in Australia because mm-hmm. they have they have uh, resources here. But, um, you know, even using very traditional tools, such as a sort of a dispatch model, it would it would tell you that renewables are the cheapest choice, which is great.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Is it a dispatch model which even just prioritizes the cost of it? You know, not yeah. even like encouraging or favoring favoring uh, renewables on it.
1: No, it does. It definitely is not developed to favor renewables. Uh, it's only developed to favor anything that has the best cost performance. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Good. I, I want to move on to maybe both your experience, and I don't know how much experience you have with teaching, but also maybe learning. And I was just wondering how, so we, we, we covered, this is why I really like your research actually, cause, cause you hit on all, not all, but, but some of these really interesting trends and, and technologies, which I would say are, below the grid, but not necessarily like there. And the, I mean, grid in both manners, I would say. So uh how and I, I'm always challenged on how to teach about this. We have this energy transition topic, basically. And, you know, what we do is not engineering. It's both policy, technology, uh sociology, politics. And how do you or how, how do you even through through learning about this, how do you kind of break this down and teach about the interlinkages between technology and, and society? That's not an easy question, just so you know, I don't know no, if I could answer it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I thought about this question very hard and I wrote down a answer and I'm completely rethinking it now. So I'm just going to give you an honest uh, opinion that is. Um, I based this on my experience. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I started my PhD and I was looking at, you know, I was, it was very broad. I was supposed to look at alternative futures and I was obviously very overwhelmed. I wasn't an engineer, you know, I had a little bit of, under, you know, I had a good understanding of energy systems, but definitely not good enough to be able to, you know, distinguish. So, um, I think with a lot of social scientists where they where they make their own life more complicated is that we tend to start from the complex for some reason. Mm-hmm. We we start where where things are the most difficult and try we try to sort of analyze them and take them apart and you know and um uh make them even more complex and I decided because I was at a technical university and I had an amazing supervisor he was like well maybe we should just go back to some simple um, parameters and some sort of logical thinking to really go, you know, forget all the institutions, forget all the um, uh, structures that exist, any infrastructure that's in place. If we just look at renewables and the fact that they're modular in their character, so you have large scale, small scale, and there's so many technologies you can combine with them to create completely different systems let's look at renewables and, and 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 think freely whatever can be created around them and i and i thought, thought that was a very good place to start it's um it's a, it's a very basic way to to take everything apart and start thinking from the beginning and that is why i wish you know if i stayed in academia i would really like to teach and show people the map of alternative futures that i developed and that guided me throughout my whole uh, studies. Cause I could always, when I felt confused, I could always fall back and look at that very simple map. And I was like, okay, I know where I am right now. Cause for those that don't know what I'm talking about, it's, it's a design space between a, uh, completely centralized, completely, uh, completely dependent, interdependent and independent, um, system of customers. And you could, you could basically, um, place any grid design in that design space. And what I found very helpful, uh, in working with that design space is that I could actually talk to people from startups, people from political offices and people who work with utilities because all three of them kind of understand those fundamentals. where they don't get along is that Startups usually come from different sectors, they they don't have the burden of, of the institutions of today and how electricity systems work um, and they rethink them, they, they think outside the box, you know, they're like, okay, so we have renewables, you know, let's connect them locally and why don't, you know, let's imagine two houses trading together and you speak to someone in the utility and they're like, that's not possible. Um, but I could see the different opinions because I had that fundamental, like I had that basic understanding of, you know, the the, the basic elements of the energy system, and it was just incredibly helpful. And I and I'd love to spread that tool and maybe see what other students think. I had some master students using that um, design space, and they really liked it. So. It could also be used at a country level. It can be used at a city level. Um, it really allows you to explore different alternatives and maybe look at the energy system you have right now and maybe question it. Is that the right thing for you? Uh, maybe you're doing it because this has been done traditionally, but maybe you can do something better, something that answers, you know, local challenges a bit more and creates opportunities that weren't there before. So. Um, I would love to, uh, if you're interested, you know, um, help you understand how the design space could be used as a teaching material and it would be an absolute pleasure.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I would. If I, is that in your thesis at the beginning there? there there's this one diagram or is it yeah, not in I, there?
1: Yeah, 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 it is there. So oh, um, you have a
0: paper copy.
1: Yeah, I have a paper copy. I, I, I have, I, to, I I have, have, have
0: I have mine up on my shelf, yes. <laughs>
1: so, um, yeah, so it's this one, so where you have the triangle.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. That one, I like that one. Uh, there's also the other one, but yes, of course, I like that one. Uh, you know what I'm going to do then? I'm going to use that in my class. Um, I'm going to use that in my class. Here, here, I found page 24. De-
1: I even described in the fourth fourth corner, you could have hydrogen economy. Um, which was sort of a realization we had later on uh, during the research process. So, yeah, you can really play around with it. And and uh, I had master students using this uh, and adding a uh, variable of – no, they're adding a dimension of ownership. And that changed things completely again because I think ownership is one of those things that are not often discussed because we are just, you know, Renewables, or sorry, uh, electricity generation and grids were were traditionally always owned by a a big company or yes. uh, someone yeah. who who can operate these difficult technologies. And all of a sudden, you have ownership that is, you know, at a individual level, uh, community level, and there are a lot of combination of different ownership models. And it's quite like it's, it's it really opens up a completely new box of possibilities when you just look at the combination of different ownership
0: models. Yeah, yeah. and I'm just looking at it now, now that we're talking about it, I'm taking the time to read, read it actually, but but it, it shifts between number of production units on one side to the number of consumption units on the other side. And then those that are, it's more connected uh, mm-hmm. down in the left hand corner to disconnected and decentralized and centralized few, few large scale units. And many small scale units. So, I, and then I like the dependent, interdependent, and independent uh, diagrams as well. Yeah.
1: And I often got the question why did you choose uh, numbers of customers as a uh, constant? And I think that answer is very simple. So, you know the way it's often looked at is from from the perspective of actors, or from a perspective of the generation, or um, or anything that's sort of based on existing systems or existing technologies. Now, when you when you try to look at it through that sort of user perspective, electricity systems would make no sense without customers customers without customers without anyone who would consume what they produce we would have no energy systems. so they are really the only constants that will be there in the future even though you you rethink everything around it customers will always be there and I like to talk about them as users because they're not always um, only customers or consumers Uh, and I write a lot about uh, or I try to write uh, about consumerism and sort of that shift towards the consumer economy. There's so many interesting macro level um, trends that are influencing the way the energy system is being shaped as well. Mm-hmm.
0: But, I, but I like that, putting the user first. Uh, actually, when the, I was just teaching about Samuel Insull, uh, one of the founders of the, we could say, the modern grid in America, mm-hmm. at least. And, and that was the breakthrough for his business. Uh, was actually figuring out and balancing out the different types of users uh, connected uh, into the grid and how to do the pricing differently and everything. So you kind of like return back to this original or the, the yeah original kind of design of the system itself. And even then, that was a, a balance between uh, smaller scale, you know, units by block. And then as the system developed, as the technology developed, it became more and more interconnected. So I kind of like this this idea of getting back to the basics, actually what yeah. you are talking about. So yeah,
1: yeah. That's, that's, that discussion is very popular in the US in particular, because that's where it comes from. New York yes, an example. It, it, it was one of the first sort of local grids and that's what it was, it was a small microgrid. And then it developed because everyone wanted to, to have access to electricity because it brings about these amazing um, opportunities
0: yeah right and it was such a political project because the politicians could of course benefit it right get get electricity for their voters and they deliver progress yeah Yeah. in that yeah okay christina i'm gonna we're gonna uh call it uh a a day on this i want to thank you so much uh for setting aside the time and talking about all your research and even your new job as well so thank you very much
1: No, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.